Now, let's turn to the uh, 15th chapter of Jeremiah. For the last couple of weeks, we've been following the the career of this uh, reluctant uh, uh, prophet who was... Uh, who was called to the very difficult task of ministering for 40 years to people who did not want to, uh, did not want to listen. They were, as Jeremiah describes them, an obstinate people like oxen. We would say uh, like a stubborn mule today. Uh, they were like ox, oxen that had shrugged off their, their yoke. They did not want to submit to, uh, to God's lordship in their, in their lives they had gone their own way, and the, the nation began to deteriorate. That's always what happens when a nation forsakes God. National decline sets in. Culture begins to disintegrate. Uh, the cities begin to die. And uh, Jeremiah was called to minister in a, in a time like that. For 40 years, he, he preached one sermon. He had one theme. He was Jeremiah one note. Uh, return, he said, return to the Lord. Uh, remember what you had in the early uh, years of your walk with God and uh, recognize the uh, consequences of your sin and return to God. Uh, for 40 years, he sang that same song, made an utter pest out of himself. And uh, people uh, ignored him and ostracized him. Uh, they beat him up. Uh, he was thrown into prison. He was put in stocks. He was finally cast into a cistern and and left to die. That was the, the sad story of his, uh, of his unfortunate life. He was like the man who was tarred and feathered and run out of town on a rail, who uh, commented, if it were not for the glory of the thing, I'd just as soon pass it up. Uh, he, he, he really did not want the assignment. Uh, but uh, it was the particular ministry to which he was, uh, he was called. And like all human beings, he got very, very depressed. He wanted to quit. We, uh, we're inclined to think of these giants of the Old Testament as supermen and, and superwomen who, uh, who never were uh, tempted to give way to their, their humanity. But Jeremiah was a very human being. He, uh, he was inclined to give up and quit. He wanted to go back to uh, Anathoth where things were much, much calmer. He didn't want to have to face the, the heat and the hassle of, of ministering to people who didn't want to listen to him. Back in uh, chapter 9... He says, uh, my people are crushed, and I am crushed. I mourn, and horror grips me. Is there no balm in, in Gilead? Gilead was famous for some sort of medicinal resin that, uh, was, uh, that was used in those days. And uh, he says, he sees that there's no healing. There's no balm in Gilead. There's no physician there. Why, then, is there no healing for the wound of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, he says, I, I wish I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers. It's very human. He says, I wish I could buy a lodge up near uh, Sun Valley and, and uh, retreat from the world and retire from my responsibilities and kick back and take, take life, life easy. But that was not, uh, not Jeremiah's lot. He continued on to preach, and uh, with that preaching, he experienced more and more resistance until in chapter 15, he wishes that uh, he had never been born. Chapter 15, verse 10. Alas, my mother, that you gave me birth. 
a man with whom the whole land strives and contends. Everyone is against me. He says, I have no friends, no one to support me, no one encourages me, no one uh, responds positively to what I, I have to say. I have neither lent nor borrowed, yet everyone curses me. The, the word that's used here for curse is not the normal word for cursing. It really means to take lightly, to ignore. Uh, the sort of people we're inclined to ignore, uh, to ignore are those who are always borrowing money or people who have loaned us money. We always feel a little bit uneasy around folks like that. And Jeremiah says, that's the way all of my countrymen teach me, uh, treat me. They avoid me. They ignore me. It's as though they owe me money or I owe them money. And uh, he, didn't, uh, he didn't like his, his plight at all. So the Lord answers in verse uh, 11. The Lord said, Surely I will deliver you for a good purpose. Ah, that sounds good, Jeremiah says. All things work together for good, as Paul puts it. God has some good purpose for my life. He's going to take me back to Anathoth, and I can get a job that, uh, that has short hours and, and big pay and long vacations, and I can uh, spend my time hunting and, and fishing and uh, preach every once in a while and carry out my priestly functions and I can buy a little cottage, and uh, I can get married, and I can have children, and I can settle down, and everything is going to be good. But uh, the Lord says, that's not the arrangement. That's not the plan. Uh, he goes on in verse 11 to say, Surely I will make your enemies plead with you. Your enemies will well, they'll give up their rebellion, and they'll respond positively to what, what you have to say. But it will come in times of disaster and in times of distress. And Jeremiah says, that's, that's not what I planned on. That, that's not a good deal. I thought life would be much uh, easier than that, that the good would be uh, success in terms of numbers, that large numbers of people would begin to attend my meetings and, and uh, the nation would repent and, and become again a light to the nations. This isn't right. It isn't fair. And uh, the Lord goes on in the verses that follow in verse 12 to explain what this, uh, what this disaster means and how intense these times of distress will be. Can a man break iron, iron from, from the north or bronze? He's referring to the Babylonian captivity, and they'll come with their iron weapons, and you'll have no defense against them. Judah's wealth and treasures I will give as plunder without charge. Because of all your sins throughout your country, I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know, for my anger will kindle a fire that will burn against you, plural, Judah. Not, not Jeremiah, but Jeremiah realizes that, that these times of distress that are coming upon his people will inflict him as well, that he'll be enslaved and taken into exile, and he'll have to suffer what, what his people suffer. And Jeremiah says, that's not a good deal. That's not what I planned on. And uh, he, he, he utterly collapses. He, he, he develops a classic case of meitis and self-pity. And, and he begins to uh, spell out his uh, case of the woe is me's, beginning in verse 15. He says, you, you know, O Lord, remember me and care for me. It's all centered on him, you see. Avenge me on my persecutors. You're long-suffering. Don't take me away. If you want to judge this people, that's all right. 
but don't, uh, don't include me. Think of how I suffered reproach for your sake. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. When the law was found, uh, uh, Jeremiah consumed the word. He, he read it, and he obeyed it, and he loved it. And uh, he, he did what God wanted him to do. And furthermore, he says in verse 17, I never sat in the company of revelers nor made merry with them. I didn't party my way through life. I took life very seriously and carried out my responsibilities, and engaged people in conversation about uh, the good news. And I, I did what the word requires uh, us to do. But uh, I sat alone. He was isolated and ostracized and rejected. He was alone. Because, he says, your hand was on me and you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? Will you be to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails? Very often they would build their houses alongside a brook that would uh, appear to be be, uh, uh, fed by a spring. But it would turn out to be an, an intermittent spring. And it would fail in a time of drought. And he says, that's the way the Lord seems to be. Uh, He's promised to be a spring of living waters. But he's disappointed me. Why should he lead me into times of of distress? And in verse, uh, verse 19, the Lord answers. This is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. Now, that word repent was the theme of Jeremiah's preaching to his, to his people. Shuv in Hebrew, repent, turn, turn around, come back to God. And now the Lord uh, preaches the same message to Jeremiah that he had preached to his contemporaries. Jeremiah, he says, you need to repent. And uh, he puts his finger on a sin that most of us are inclined to ignore. Self-pity is a sin from which we need to repent. And... Uh, Jeremiah's tendency to center everything upon himself and to feel sorry for himself and to feel that God had had rejected him and and neglected him was wrong because God knows what self-pity does to us. When we permit self-pity to go on and we we pander to it and uh, we allow it to to set up in, in, in our life and take root, then we begin to get depressed. And we're not inclined to do what God has called us to do and serve him faithfully. And that's, that's why God says to Jeremiah, if you repent, then you can serve me. It's uh, exactly what Paul says in, in Galatians when he talks about the law of, of sowing and reaping, the law of inevitable consequence. He, he first states the principle. He says, you, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If we pander to self-interest and to self-pity, any manifestation of of the self, it results in destruction, the decline of the quality of life. We get more and more depressed and out of it spiritually until we're no longer usable. But he says if you sow to the Spirit, then uh, there's life and wholeness and health and vitality and fruitfulness and impact on, on the lives of others. And uh, so the principle is stated. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. 
But if you utter, if you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. The worthless words are the ones that are described in verses 15 through 18 in the preceding paragraph. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. Cause them to turn to the truth, but don't be uh, derailed by them. Don't let them cause you to miss God's best. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you to rescue and save you. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the cruel. And Jeremiah thinks, ah, things are going to get, get better. God's going to redeem me. He's going to take me out of this terrible situation. And he's going to change my circumstances. And, and uh, things will get much more hopeful. And, and my circumstances will be much more positive. But that isn't what the Lord had in mind at all. It was not deliverance from his circumstances. It was deliverance in the midst of his circumstances, as the Lord makes very clear by the way he words this promise, I'll deliver you from their grasp. You won't fall in uh, prey to their, to their thinking. You won't be discouraged or dissuaded by them. You won't collapse. You won't give up. You won't quit. You won't get discouraged. But uh, as a matter of fact, he says, the good that I'm going to bring is not better circumstances, but worse. And uh, our Lord's description of the circumstances that uh, follow is described in chapter 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, you must not marry and have sons or daughters in this place. Now, I, you know, Jeremiah was a young man, late teens, early 20s. The sap was uh, running. He probably had some... Uh, lovely young lady up in Anathoth with great big brown eyes and black raven hair. And uh, it was the normal thing, particularly in this Eastern culture, to marry and have lots of children. And Jeremiah, like every other man, dreamed of the day when he could, could build his uh, log cabin up in Anathoth and take his bride up there and, and uh, put a little fence around his house and plant some roses and, and uh, get a job and and settle down. And God says, Jeremiah, you're, you're not to marry. And the word, the, 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 the way he negates the verb is the way that's used in the Ten Commandments. It's an absolute negation. You must not, under any set of circumstances, uh, marry. Now, what Jeremiah didn't fully understand is that even this was a provision of love because he goes on to describe that this whole civilization is going to be overturned and taken into captivity, and Jeremiah would be spared from the, the horror of seeing his children starve during times of siege and, and the horrors of the exile and the destruction that came as a result of the Babylonian captivity. But, but as, as Jeremiah looked at this command, it, it must have seemed very hard and very harsh. And uh, furthermore, since trouble seems to come in threes, there are three uh, there's a set of three things that Jeremiah can expect. He, he says in verse 5, this is what the Lord says, Don't enter a house where there is a funeral meal. Don't go to mourn or show sympathy, because I have withdrawn my blessing, my love, and my pity from this, this people. Don't go to funerals, he says. Give up, and uh, in, in funerals uh, in an Eastern society, again, were quite different. There were times of, of feasting as, as well as mourning. And it was a you were 
to not go to a funeral was was to uh, was a social uh, faux pas. You, you were snubbing someone. So he was to give up all the social amenities that were culturally acceptable. And and then in verse eight he says, "Don't enter a house where there is feasting and sit down to eat and, and drink. Don't uh, gather with your friends to watch the Super Bowl and, and chow down." And, and uh, have a good time of uh, uh, fellowship together, that's not for you. He was to give up all of those things. And furthermore, even though he gave them, gave them up, the Lord says in verse 10, when you tell these people all of this, they'll, they'll ask you, why has the Lord decreed such a great disaster upon us? They won't see what you're trying to say. They won't understand. They'll question your actions. They, 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 won't, uh, they won't agree that what you're doing is good or valuable. Are, are profitable for the nation. They'll continue to stand against you. But uh, in verse 14, he says, The days are coming when men will no longer say, As surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, As surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north, and out of all the countries where he has banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave their forefathers. The men that he refers to here are not Israelites, they're Gentiles. He, he says the nation is going to go into captivity. But that's not the end of the story. The, I, I'm going to bring them back out of their exile. Bring them back to the land and restore them. And the whole world will say, look what God has done. It'll be a second exodus. The, the reason God worked one miracle after another to deliver people from Egypt was because God wanted the world to know what he had done. It wasn't just for the sake of Israel. It was for the world. You start reading through the book of Joshua and you come to chapter 4 and, and the Lord says through Joshua to the people, do you want to know why I, I opened a way through the, Nile, uh, through the uh, Red Sea and through the Jordan? It's so the whole world will know that I am Yahweh. And... Uh, uh, there's the story of, of Goliath and David, which we all know. We heard, we've heard from the time we were little children. But most of us never hear the point of the whole story. It's told in, in, uh, in 1 Samuel uh, 17. Uh, God says to David and the nation, the reason I'm going to give David victory over Goliath is so the whole world will know that I am the Lord. And that's what he says here. The reason I'm going to bring you back out of exile is for the sake of the Gentiles. It's not even for your sake. You see, it was God's intention in the very beginning, from the very beginning, that Israel would be a light to the nations. The Old Testament is the greatest missionary story ever told. It's the story of how God plans to bring salvation to the world through a, through a one nation. And all of the miracles, all the things that God did is so the Gentiles would know. And the point that he wants to make here is, Jeremiah, I'm going to scourge this people. I'm going to purify them so they'll be pure. They'll have their place again in, in history as a light to the nations. And the Gentiles will know that I am God. It's all for their sake. And even though they have to suffer, it, it's ultimately for good. And what that teaches us is that the good thing that God is doing is not putting us in pleasant circumstances. We can't expect it. Success is not, it can't be valued or evaluated in terms of, of what God does just for me, in terms of making me comfortable. God's ultimate goal 
is to help you and me grow up to full maturity in Christ and to display the character of Christ and to use us to bring men and women to himself, to manifest his plan to bring salvation to the world both by word and, and by life. That's, that's the good that he's doing. And, and he doesn't mind at all putting us through some very difficult circumstances to accomplish that greater good. And we need to get that straight. Otherwise, we'll, we'll get disappointed and discouraged and we'll feel sorry for ourselves like, like Jeremiah did. People are fond of quoting Romans 8.28 where Paul says, All things work together for good. And, and they assume from that verse that what they mean is that all these terrible things that are happening to me are all going to work together and produce some good thing. My uncle will send me a $10,000 check and I'll be able to pay all my bills and everything will work out. But you haven't read the rest of the verse. It says, Those whom he foreknew he called those whom he called he predestinated those whom he predestinated he justified those whom he justified he glorified that's the good it's it's that process by which we are conformed to the image of christ and and we begin to display his glory that's the good thing that god is after he doesn't care oh he cares that we suffer but he doesn't mind subjecting us to suffering in order to accomplish some higher good and that's why he says to jeremiah I'm, I'm going to take your people through suffering, and you're going to go through it with them. Nevertheless, it's all for, it's all for good. And, and Jeremiah got the point. He says in verse 19, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in times of distress, to you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers possessed nothing but false gods, worthless idols that did them no good. Do men make their own gods? Yes, but they are, they are not gods. That's all part of the quotation from the nations. The nations, as Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians, will turn from dead idols to serve the living and true God. And it will be through Israel and the work that God does uh, to and, and through his people in refining them and purging them and preparing them for this great missionary task. And furthermore, in verse 21, the Lord says, I will teach them... This time I will teach them my power and my might. And the them refers to, to the nations, the Gentiles. Then they will know that my name is the Lord. They'll no longer call me Baal or, or Asherah or Hura Mazda or, or Marduk or, or any of the other names of the, of the pagan uh, deities, but they'll call me Yahweh. They'll, they'll know that I am the Lord and they'll love me and they'll submit to me. But in the meantime, he says, Judah, in verse 1 of chapter 17, Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. It's in, their sin is ineradicable. The, the only thing we can do is take Judah off into exile for a time, and they must suffer in order to purge them of, of, of their sin. And in verse 4, he says, Though... Uh, through your own fault, Judah, you will lose the inheritance I gave you. They'll be cast out of the land. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know. For you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever. The, the Hebrew word forever just means for a long, long time. They really didn't have the same concept of eternity that, that the Greeks had. It doesn't mean, God doesn't mean he's going to cut them off forever. But his anger would burn against them for a time until they repented and came back. So uh, Judah was going to go through tough times in order to be restored to her place of prominence and mission in the world. And, and unfortunately, uh, young Jeremiah, this hypersensitive uh, young, young man, would have to go through that experience with them. And what follows is the 
assurance to Jeremiah that no matter what happens, he can be the kind of man that God wants him to be. Let's begin reading with with verse 7. Pardon me, verse 5. This is what the Lord says to Jeremiah. This is the way to live when, when times are tough. Cursed is the man, the, the word for man here is the word for a strong man, an able man, a manly man. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, that is, on humanity, what man thinks, what man does, man's ideas, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He, he will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in, a, in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Now, that, that's what a friend of mine calls the lost secret of humanity. That's a principle that you find throughout Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the secret of living life as, as men and women and, and as we long to live it and as God intends us to live it. Live it. And without this uh, understanding, we'll miss the mark. The Bible just keeps saying the same thing over and over again. There are really two options in life. We either trust man or we trust God. There isn't any middle road. There isn't any third way. Either we trust man and in, in what man thinks and what man does, and we rely upon our humanity and, and our education and our personality and our physical strength and our ability and, and what we can do, or we trust God. Those are the only two options in life. Uh, some of you have read uh, the following. This is an extract from the President's Council on Physical Fitness. A workout makes you better today than you were yesterday. It strengthens the body, relaxes the mind, toughens the spirit. When you work out regularly, your problems diminish and your confidence grows. A workout is a personal triumph. It is the badge of a winner, the mark of an organized, gold-oriented person who has taken charge of his or her destiny. It is a way of preparing for life's challenges and proving to yourself that you have what it takes to do what is necessary. A workout is a key that helps unlock the door to opportunity and success. Hidden within each of us is an extraordinary force. Physical and mental fitness are the triggers that can release it. A workout is a form of rebirth. When you finish a good workout, you don't simply feel better. You feel better about yourself. Now, uh, someone asked me last week what I thought about that, uh, that quote. It's on a poster that's making its way around. And I said, well, it's both good and bad. Uh, I'm a kind of a physical fitness nut myself, and I think it's important to stay reasonably in shape. You know, and beyond a certain point, it gets to be a little bit ridiculous. But uh, uh, it's a good thing to uh, work out, to have a regular uh, uh, workout schedule and stay with it. You, you do feel better. I don't think it lengthens your life. I think that's in God's hands, but uh, you know, it certainly can improve the quality of your life. It's a good thing. Stay in shape. And uh, certainly you can do that without God. You don't need God to uh, run five miles a day or to run a, 
four and a half uh, second forty or whatever. You know, you, you can punt and kick and pass and throw and sack quarterbacks and do all kinds of marvelous things without God. I used to uh, occasionally speak to chapels for football teams in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I remember one coach telling me one time before I went in, he said, "Hey Roper, he said, I don't care what you tell them, don't tell them you can't do nothing." He said. Because apparently a lot of people had gone through and said, without God, you can do nothing. Well, you can do a lot of things without knowing that God is uh, available. On the one hand, we can't do anything without God. Uh, He gave us our bodies. He gave us our ability to build up our bodies and uh, to do the things that we do. So ultimately, it all depends on him. But you can do all sorts of things without recognizing God's sovereignty in your life. You can make a lot of money. You can get to the top of your business. Uh, You can be very successful. You don't need God. You don't need to recognize God to do all those things. What the Bible means is that it takes God to be wise and it takes God to have character. Whenever Scripture says without God you can do nothing, it's talking about about God-like character. And what Scripture teaches us is that we really can't do very much about being the kind of uh, people we want to be without God. It seems to me that the closer we get to the inner man, the more we need God, and we need to recognize God. Now, what what Jeremiah is being told here is that if you want to stand in the tough times, if you want to be tough, when the going gets tough, you need God. It takes more than than your natural humanity, your unaided uh, humanity. You need God. You need to rely on Him and trust in Him. If, if, you, if you don't, if you trust in man, you'll be like the heath in the desert, a bush, old dried up, semi-desiccated bush out here in the desert that has all sorts of potential but never realizes its, its potential. But uh, on the other hand, if you trust in God, it says if you believe him and you put your confidence in him, you'll be like a tree planted by rivers. And uh, to explain a metaphor like that is almost to explain it away. You, you ruin the picture. You just have to see it in your mind. You know what a tree looks like. It's a, it's a symbol of majesty and beauty and strength. Uh, last uh, spring, Judd Lund and Gary Parsons and I went looking for a, a canyon out in, the, out in the desert that Pete Zamowski uh, had found. And we hunted all day, finally found it late in the afternoon. We weren't lost. It was just the canyon that was lost. And uh, we drove up on the top of the canyon, and all around us, the, the terrain was, uh, it was just desert, rugged desert country with deep ravines and, and a few bushes here and there. And you drove up the top of the canyon, you looked down in, and here's this, this lovely meadow with cottonwood trees and birds and funny little goldfish that are indigenous just to that one little canyon. There's like a little paradise down there. And uh, this, this verse came to mind when I stood on the canyon uh, edge and, and look down at that, those, that lush vegetation. The man or woman who trusts in God is like a tree planted by rivers of water. What a contrast uh, between the bushes around us and the trees beneath our feet with their roots going down into the soil and absorbing moisture from, from this little, uh, little stream. Now that's what Jeremiah is, that, he's being assured that if he puts his roots down into God, he'll be a man in the midst of, of adversity. He won't fold. He won't crack up. God never promises that he won't see drought. It's just that when the drought comes, he can continue to be, to be fruitful. 
he won't wither up and dry away and quit and give up, stop preaching. He'd be able to, to stand. Uh, Jeremiah uh, knew his heart just as we know ours. And he says in verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? He's talking about his own heart. Uh, this is Jeremiah's response to our Lord's promise that he could be like a tree. He says, Ah, Lord, I know my heart. It's uh, Many of our translations put desperately wicked, but the, the Hebrew term really means incurably sick. It's terminal. It's just sick. He says, My heart is weak and impotent and I'm inadequate. I can't, I can't do it. Uh, and my heart is always deceiving me. I don't know when I'm trusting God and when I'm trusting myself. I don't know when my motives are good or, or when they're improper. I can't understand all the thoughts that come to my mind. And my heart is so deceitful that it, it fools me. And uh, I don't know what to do with it. And, and again, what Jeremiah is doing is putting his finger on one of the, the essential problems of the human race. It, it, it's only the Bible that tells us that the heart is sick and, and desperately uh, wicked. And those books that are based upon the Bible and that outlook, you can divide all of humanity into two types of people. Those who think that the heart is strong and basically good and all we need to do is reach into ourselves and find this hidden resource for living, act upon the God who is within us all. That's one set of, of attitudes that you'll find in, in the human race. And, and the other is those who realize that the heart is weak and fallible and inclined to sin. And as the hymn puts it, prone to wander. And then without God, we will destroy our marriages and destroy our businesses and destroy our health and destroy our schools and our government and, and our personal lives. We know that. And, and Jeremiah knew it. He put his finger right on the issue. He says, I, I know what my heart is like. Winston Churchill said, uh, Certain it is that while men are gathering knowledge and power with ever-increasing speed, their vir virtues and their wisdom have not shown any notable improvement as the centuries have rolled on. Under sufficient stress, starvation, terror, warlike passion, or even cold intellectual frenzy, the modern man we know so well will do the most terrible things and his modern woman will back him up. And that's, uh, that's what Jeremiah knows and recognizes. But the Lord's assurance is, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, his way, and according to the fruit of his deeds. He doesn't say that he's going to reward Jeremiah for obvious success, for numbers, for conversions. Uh, when Jeremiah turned in his reports to the denominational headquarters, they looked pretty grim. Forty years of preaching with no results. And God said, that's all right. It's all right. You've been called to a difficult place. What matters is your conduct and your fruit, your character. You've faithfully done what I've, what I've called you to do, and you'll be rewarded for that. And uh, the Lord goes on in verse 11, Like a partridge that hatches eggs, it did not lay as the man who gains riches by unjust means. When his life is half gone, they will desert him. And in the end, he will prove to be a fool. That's uh, stated in opposition to the reward that God will give. The partridge, according to popular belief, uh, sat on the eggs of other birds and hatched them out. And uh, a little fledgling, after a while, would look at this 
big bird and say, hey, you're not my mother. Big ugly turkey, you're not my mother. And fly away. And uh, the Lord says to Jeremiah, that's the way uh, reward that's ill-gotten, reward that's based upon human effort is like that. Uh, in, in, In time, it just flies away and leaves you empty. The nest is empty. There's nothing there. There's no fulfillment, no satisfaction. Sure, you can take charge of your life and, and you can make it big in the world. But in the end, it's all empty and it'll leave you unsatisfied and wasted and, and, uh, uh, and, and lacking in, in any real sense of satisfaction. But on the other hand, if you trust in God and you let him produce the beauty and the grace of Christ's character in you and you faithfully do what God has called you to do, there will be reward. And uh, so Jeremiah responds in verse uh, 12. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. They're like the, the bush in the desert, in contrast to the tree that puts its roots down into the spring of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. In other words, when when the Lord heals you, you are really healed. And when he saves you, you are sure enough saved. He, uh, excuse me, uh, he's our hope. He's the sanctuary. He's the one to whom we run when circumstances get difficult. You see, what Jeremiah saw was was Judah's ship of state going down. And unfortunately, he was on board. He saw himself going down with it, and he didn't like that. But the Lord said, there's only one way that we can salvage Judah, and that is to purge her through discipline, and you're going to have to go through the same set of circumstances. And, and you must stand like a, like a rock in the midst of a, of a torrent. You must not budge. You must continue to preach and continue to, to display the grace of God in, in your life. And when the hard times come, You run to me, put your roots down into me, and you'll find a sanctuary there. Now, that's the promise that we all have, regardless of what what your circumstances are in mind. He wants us to be like a tree and to be fruitful. Uh, When I I was uh, working with students back in the 60s, that was, for me, a very heady time because we were working with uh, people that were known at least in the student world, all, all around the, the United States and in some cases around the world. And one of the young men that I had an opportunity to get to know and, and talk to was Dave Harris, who most of you know was the husband of Joan Baez for several years. And uh, David was a, was a brilliant young man. He was president of the student body at Stanford. He had a great deal of, of promise and uh, had very high ideals. Uh, he was... Uh, at that time against the uh, war in Southeast Asia, and, and at least his justification was, uh, was humanitarian, and uh, he was, was very outspoken in his opposition to other things that were happening here that he felt dehumanized people. Uh, a number of us had an opportunity to share the gospel with, with Dave, and he never responded because his confidence was in man. He was basically a humanist, and he believed that he could, by his own brilliance and his personality, he, was just a, he could just charm the socks off of you. And by his own human ability, he could, he could change the world. That was his goal, to change the world. 
At the same time, there were a number of lesser-known students whom, whom most of you know here, some of whom are on our staff and others in our, in our congregation who were students there that no one knew. And uh, through the, the times when the campus was being burned and trashed and material equipment, buildings were being destroyed and stu- students were rioting, these quiet students went about the business of leaving a, a Christian witness and living out the grace of God and the character of God. And as I look back on, on that, I, I see the results of their lives. There was a young man by the name of Tim Stafford, whom some you may have seen his name in Christianity Today and some other magazines, who was unknown, basically unknown then. He's known now because of his writings. And he's having a tremendous impact upon the world because he's a quiet man of faith. And that's what, that's what Jeremiah wants us to know. It's what God wants us to know this morning. What matters is our belief in God. We can't trust ourselves. We can't trust our humanity. We must count on the Lord. Put our roots down into His Word. Believe Him. Obey Him. Trust Him. Live out the life that He's given to us. And you'll begin to see God use you in ways that you never expected. And you'll be like a tree that brings forth fruit in its season. Let's pray. Father, we desire the the sort of majesty and strength it's typified by this, this illustration of a tree. That's our longing and our, uh, and our desire. Grant it to us, Lord, because you've promised it. Help us to be men and women who believe you through the hard times, who count upon your strength for every difficult circumstance of life. Give us, like Jeremiah, a love for your word and, uh, uh, and a discipline. It's necessary to spend time in your word, getting to know you and what you're like and and what you uh, can make available to us. And give us hearts of faith to believe you and to stand wherever you've called us and not to give way to self-pity and and, uh, and personal anguish because our our lot is hard, but to see that as the the place where we can give witness and uh, and be a a redemptive uh, person in that circumstance. That's our desire. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.